I want to ask you to grab a Bible with me and open to the book of 2 Corinthians. If you're new here at Old North, we are picking up in a series that we've been going through in the fall in the book of 2 Corinthians. And as you grab that Bible in the pew back in front of you, I'm going to remind you of something that most of you already know, which is from the perspective of heaven, there is a dividing line that we cannot have it both ways, that there is from the perspective of God no gray area between those who are Christians and thus receive the blessings of God and those who aren't following Jesus. Jesus talks about this in Matthew chapter 25 when he refers to his second coming that we've just been singing about a moment ago. And he says that he will come and divide people like a shepherd divides the sheep from the goats. Sheep and goats have a similar shape and a similar size, but they are not the same. (laughs) And it points to the fact that you can't sort of be a Christian. (laughs) If you live in Hartford, Connecticut, which is halfway between Boston and New York City, you can't be both a Red Sox and a Yankees fan. If you live in Youngstown, Ohio, which is halfway between Cleveland and Pittsburgh, you can't be both a Steelers fan and a Browns fan. And when you encounter the gospel of Jesus Christ, you either believe it or you reject it. You either follow Christ or you deny Christ. There's no middle ground from the perspective of heaven. And God is the one who sets the terms of the dividing line between those who are children and those who aren't. We don't set the terms. No matter how much our culture will try to tell us that we can set the terms of our spiritual realities, we don't set the terms of who God's children are and who aren't. God does that. In the book of 2 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul has shared the gospel of Jesus with the church at Corinth. And some who still claim to be followers of God have opposed him because of the physical persecution that he's endured. They rejected the apostle and they did so because they wanted a message and a messenger on their own terms. But by rejecting Paul and the gospel that he preached, these people who claimed to be part of God's people were actually rejecting Jesus himself. But there were many who embraced the gospel that Paul preached and they embraced the apostle himself. They were true Christians. And as we turn our attention to 2 Corinthians chapter 7 this morning, we see a recognition by Paul of the comfort and the joy that he has found because of those who have stood for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so follow with me as I read in 2 Corinthians 7, starting at verse 2. This is what Paul writes. He says, Make room in your hearts for us. We have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. 
I do not say this to condemn you, for I said before that you are in our hearts to die together and live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when you came into Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoiced still more. For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourself innocent in the matter. So although I wrote to you, it is not it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, nor for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong, but in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God. Therefore, we are comforted. And besides our own comfort, we rejoiced still more at the joy of Titus because his spirit has been refreshed by you all. For whatever boasts I made to him about you, I was not put to shame. But just as everything we said to you was true, so also our boasting before Titus has proved true. And his affection for you is even greater as he remembers the obedience of you all, how you received him with fear and trembling. I rejoice because I have complete confidence in you. These handful of verses are loaded with emotional expression. Sometimes when you read the scripture, you might not immediately catch that type of expression, but if you read it a few times or if you read it out loud like we did a moment ago, you begin to hear words of emotion that are just said again and again and again. Words like confidence and affection and sorrow and grief and longing and pride and comfort and joy and indignation and fear and zeal. This is not simply a theological appeal. This is an expression of the heart. The predominant realities in these emotions that Paul is expressing to these dear Christians at Corinth is that of comfort and joy. Looking at verses 5 and 6, he says in verse 5, he points them to some of the difficulty that he has experienced, some of the affliction that he has had at every turn, fighting without and fear within. 
And he points them to the reality of God in saying, but God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. Everywhere Paul had turned, there seemed to be fighting and quarreling. Conflict was always near. There was fighting without, meaning outside of his body, all around him. There was fear within because he didn't know what was going to happen next. And it makes sense because Paul was talking about things of the greatest consequence in this life. Life and death. Eternity and God. The choices you make and the beliefs that you have. And when those things are challenged in the lives of some people, and there is a call to put your faith in the Lord Jesus and to follow him with all of your life, well, some people get really upset. (laughs) This distress that Paul experienced was not just due to illness or difficulty at home. This was a distress because he was giving to them the very thing that they needed for life with God. And some of them were rejecting it. This was a distress because he cared deeply for their souls. And it wasn't going very well. But God comforts the downcast. Isaiah chapter 49 verse 13 says, Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. And friends, that's good news because some of you have been engaging in witness with your friends or your neighbors or your coworkers for a very long time and it's not going very well. <laughs> You've been laboring in prayer for somebody you love because you desperately want them to experience the joy that you have found in the Lord Jesus but it's not going very well. <laughs> Maybe you're the downcast but God comforts the downcast and he can and will comfort you. But pause with me for a moment and consider the intensity of this emotional expression that we see in verse 3. He says to them, in reasserting his affection and love for them, he says, You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. That's pretty intense. (laughs) To die together and to live together. I wonder if you think about your Christian life in that way. I wonder if you think about the Christian relationships that you have around you or even in this church in that way. To die together and to live together. It doesn't get more serious than that, does it? For Paul, this level of affection, this commitment, and this intentionality to these particular people is what is found in the nature of Christian relationships. There's no casual or, or flippancy about it. Relational indifference is not an option. 
And when I think about that expression, and as I meditated on it over the course of the last week, and I think about all the many things that we've tried to accomplish here in this church community over the past number of years, I can see how many of them feed into this level of commitment and intentionality and affection to die together and to live together. Because when we raise together our commitment to the reality that God is the magnificent king of the universe, who is perfect in all of his ways, in a world that is continuing to diminish him, we raise him up all the more and say that he is worthy of our worship. When we commit ourselves to living out the gospel of grace, that God forgives us through the Lord Jesus and that we can extend that grace and commitment to each other and then we follow the Lord Jesus with our lives. When we commit ourselves to each other, to encourage each other, to help each other, to financially support the gospel ministry together, to fight against sin together, to guard against errant belief together, to pursue Christ together. And this commitment is what we call church membership. So we formalize those types of relationships to one another. And when together we set our hope for the future on the coming of the Lord and our eternity with him, not on our retirement, not on our comfort, not on our material wealth, but our abiding hope rests in the fact that we will be with the Lord forever. And then, as we near the end of our days, we die. (laughs) And we enter into that hope. You are in our hearts to die together and to live together. Maybe the Lord will have us here together with all of these people and picking up more along the way as we grow in him, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out, decade in and decade out, to celebrate, to grieve, to grow and struggle, to marry and to bury together, to die together. and to live together. What incredible expression of what the Christian life looks like in the context of a local church. And this level of commitment with each other contributes to the comfort and to the joy of the apostle and to the comfort and the joy of all of those who believe.
You know, it's interesting, as Paul's predominant expression is comfort and joy, we often would say that the opposite of comfort or joy would be grief. But Paul points to a good type of grief that leads to an even greater type of joy. And he does so in verses 8 through 13. Paul had previously written to the Corinthians and he addressed them directly and sternly about some of the sin issues that was going on in the life of that community. And listen to what he says about it in verse 8. He says, For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it. Though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you, though only for a while. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt a godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. Verse 10. For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. If you're a person who underlines in your Bible, that's one of those ones you're going to want to underline. Godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly, worldly grief produces death. What happened with the Corinthians and the fact that they were rebuked for their sin helps us to understand how we should respond when we are confronted with our own sin. Friends, if you want to know God and you want to follow him with your life, there will be times when you are confronted. The message of the gospel is not to always make you feel better in the immediate to make you instantly feel good. In fact, that kind of sentimentality will often lead and breed unbelief. Sometimes you have to receive a hard word or a hard teaching or admonition and only then will you experience something that is much greater than short-term happiness. You will experience deep and abiding joy and comfort because the Bible addresses our sinful thoughts, our sinful actions, it addresses our worldly outlooks, it addresses the allegiances that we all intuitively make with the world and when we are confronted this could cause in you hurt or anger and it does often <laughs> but hopefully it results in grief grief is Distress, sadness, or regret. And Paul highlights two types of grief. Worldly grief and godly grief. Worldly grief is being upset because of what your sin has done to you. It is a grief of the consequences. It focuses on the hurt. Worldly grief is a grief of the self. And in this way, it's actually very closely tied to the sin that brought you into that place in the first place because your sin was in some way, shape, or form a type of self-indulgence. And the grief becomes a self-indulgence as well because it's just focused on you. 
Worldly grief is not focused on sinning against God. It's focused on what I've done and how it's affected me. Worldly grief is a trap. It's a trap because it leaves you with regrets that are left unresolved. I've sat with people, many, who are dying and want to say in those moments and in those times, in worldly grief, all of the regrets that they have that are unresolved. And Paul says that this worldly grief leads to death. But godly grief produces something wonderful. Remember, if grief is sadness or distress or regret, a godly grief occurs when someone is truly sorry to God for the sin that they have committed against him. God himself helps us to feel this type of godly grief through the conviction of the Holy Spirit, and we need his help in feeling it. And that is what happened in the life of some of these Corinthians. It's what happens in your life when you experience godly grief is that this grief produces in you repentance. When you feel truly remorseful to God for what you've done against him, it is the first step toward repentance. And repentance is very simply that remorse for sinning against God but also the resolve to turn away from that kind of behavior going forward. And this is followed immediately by taking the first steps in a new direction. This idea of grief that leads to repentance is at the core of the message of the New Testament, and it's at the core of Jesus' preaching. In fact, from the very first time Jesus appears in the first gospel, he gives people the instruction to repent. <laughs> and from then on, it's his most consistent message. When the church is founded in the book of Acts, Peter's most consistent message is repent. Mark chapter 1, Jesus comes onto the scene in Galilee proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Throughout the Bible, the beginning of your response to the work of God, the very beginning of it, is repentance. Leslie Newbegin, the late missionary to India, wrote of the true meaning of repentance in this way. He said, I remember once visiting a village in the Madras diocese. There was no road into the village. You reached it by crossing a river. And you could do this either on the south side of the village or on the north. And the congregation had decided that I would come by the southern route. And they had prepared a welcome such as only an Indian village can prepare. There was music and fireworks and garlands and fruit and ceremonial martial arts. Everything you can imagine. Unfortunately, I entered the village at the north end and found only a few goats and chickens. Crisis. I had to disappear while word was sent to the assembled congregation and the entire village did a sort of U-turn to face the other way. 
And then I duly reappeared. This is what repentance or metanoia in the Greek means. It means to turn away from your sins that make that might make it look like a traditional call to sort of moral reformation, but it's more than just turning away from your sins. Newbigin writes, the point is this. The reign of God has drawn near. That's the message of Jesus. But you can't see it because you're looking the wrong way. You're expecting the wrong thing. What you think is God isn't God at all. You have to be, as Paul says, transformed by the renewing of your mind. You have to go through the mental revolution. Otherwise, the reign of God will be totally hidden from you. And so repent. Turn away from sin and turn toward God. Good grief results in great joy and comfort for the messenger and for those who receive the message. I think of the story of King Frederick II, who was an 18th century king of Prussia. He was visiting a prison in Berlin and the inmates had tried to prove to him how they had been unjustly imprisoned. All of them except for one. That one quietly sat in a corner while all the rest protested their innocence. And seeing him sitting there oblivious to the commotion, the king asked him what he was there for. Armed robbery, said the man. And the king asked, were you guilty? Yes, sir, he answered. I entirely deserve my punishment. The king then gave an order to the guard. Release this guilty man because I don't want him corrupting all those innocent people. Friends, that's a picture of repentance leading to salvation and how a lack of repentance only keeps you imprisoned. If you are here today and you know in your hearts that you have sinned against God, don't pretend you're innocent. (laughs) Don't try to convince yourself that there's no charge. Don't believe the culture that tells you that your thoughts and your words and your deeds don't really matter all that much and they don't have any moral significance or moral consequence. They do matter. They matter because you matter. And the call for you, for me, is not to live in pride, not to live in self-justification, but to repent, (laughs) to remorsefully turn away from sin, to turn to Christ, to follow him, and he will forgive you and restore you to God. Godly grief produces repentance, which leads to your salvation. Paul is rejoicing in that repentance with these Christians. Good grief. It's good grief that results in great joy and comfort for the messenger and the one who receives it. And sometimes you wonder, am I truly repentant? Or if somebody has repented of their sin and you're questioning, how do I know 
if they're repentant? Well, Paul gives a list of what we might say evidences of repentance, at least among these Corinthian believers, and they're so good for us to know. Right there in verse 11, seven evidences of repentance. He says, see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you. What earnestness, which is rejecting of indifference and becoming more intentional. What eagerness to clear yourselves, to prove your loyalty to the Lord Jesus through the gospel. What indignation for their, their own sin and for those who have opposed the apostle. What fear now they have of God's judgment. What longing to make things right with Paul and with God. What zeal to do what is right. What punishment is displayed in their willingness to deal with those in their midst who have rejected this message and opposed him. And as a result of this godly grief, repentance is birthed and repentance produces these fruits of earnestness and eagerness and indignation and fear and longing and zeal and punishment. And as a result, Paul was comforted and you can be too. Because good grief results in great joy and comfort for the messenger and the one who receives it. Paul finishes the section with an example of this comfort. And he's back to the relationality again. In verses 13 through 16, we see another mention of Titus. His coming was a salve to the wound. They had been refreshed by him. He had been refreshed by them. Joy was the result in this church family. Joy for the ones who died together and lived together. And the same is true for you and for me. Thomas Fuller once wrote, you cannot repent too soon because you do not know how soon it may be too late. (laughs) Some of us struggle with repentance because of our own pride. Others of us struggle with repentance because of our own guilt. We might be thinking to ourselves, why would Jesus want to forgive me again? My past repentance hasn't held. I've gone back to my old ways or I've developed habits and patterns of other sins. And author Dane Ortland quotes Thomas Goodwin's statement that Christ's own joy, comfort, happiness, and glory are increased by showing grace and mercy in pardoning, relieving, and comforting his members here on earth. Why should you repent? Because it's good for you and because it brings Jesus joy. He goes on to explain with this analogy. A compassionate doctor has traveled deep into the jungle to provide medical care to a primitive tribe afflicted with a contagious disease. He has had his medical equipment flown in. He's correctly diagnosed the problem and the antibiotics are prepared and available. He's independently wealthy and has no need of any kind of financial compensation. But as he seeks to provide care, those who are afflicted refuse the care. They want to take care of themselves. They want to heal on their own terms. But finally, a few brave young men step forward to receive the care 
being freely provided. What does the doctor feel in that moment? He feels joy. His joy increases to the degree that the sick come to him for help and healing because it's the whole reason why he came. And so it is with us and with Christ. He does not get flustered and frustrated when we come to him again for fresh forgiveness, for renewed pardon, with distress and need and emptiness. That's the whole point. (laughs) That's why he came. You know, there's a tale of a farmer whose sheep and pig had escaped. Together, they had found a weak rail on the fence and they had pressed up upon it until it broke underneath their weight. And seeing the opportunity, they quickly bolted from the field and they began to explore their new and unfamiliar surroundings. It did not take long for the farmer to notice that two of his animals were missing and so he set out to find them. But the animals had wandered quite far and they had not left much of a trail behind. Day turned into night. And after a restless night, the farmer resumed his search in the morning. The animals have now been gone for more than 24 hours, and he began to wonder what could possibly have happened to them. It was in the afternoon of the second day that he began to hear a distant bleeding, the sound of his sheep crying out. He then began to follow the sound as it led to a nearby bog. And it was there that he had found the missing sheep and his missing pig. Both had fallen into a deep ditch. Both had become coated in muck. Both were unable to scramble out. But where the pig had been content to wallow in the mud, the sheep had known to bleat pathetically until the farmer had to come and rescue it, to lift it out and to cleanse it. And then the farmer said this, If you are ever deceived into a sin and overtaken by weakness, don't lose heart. God at once is your compassionate Savior when you call to him. Tell him in the simplest words the story of your fall and the sorrow that you feel. Ask him to wash you at once and to restore your soul. For if a sheep and a sow fall into a ditch, the sow wallows in it, but the sheep bleats pathetically until she is cleansed by her master. Be the sheep, my friend. Don't be the pig. Good grief results in great joy and comfort for the messenger and for the one who receives it. And so the encouragement for you today is to ask God to foster that grief within you for your sin. And as he does, repent. Let's pray. Father, we want great joy and comfort that only you can give. 
we recognize that the road to that great joy and comfort is forged on the relationship of the Lord Jesus and his work on the cross. Help us in grief and repentance, we pray. Break down our pride, our obstinance, our indifference. Lead us to this repentance, which points to our salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.